the work that I do is really instrumental in the somatics, what's referred to as an interoception, the sensations that we notice inside of ourselves that deals with our physiology. Not everyone has access to this due to their own trauma and experience because some people, their bodies are not safe due to their experience in life. Because their sensations are so overwhelming? Overwhelming or the only way to survive was to go numb. This is I Have My Reasons, a podcast highlighting stories of human resourcefulness, resiliency, and growth. I am your host, Deandra Day. In this episode of I Have My Reasons, I sit down with somatic experiencing practitioner and adventure guide, Verdell Jessup. And in this podcast, we talk about how Verdell came to this work, trauma and healing through the nervous system, panic attacks, spiritual bypassing, why meditation and breathwork can sometimes cause more harm, an embodied path to healing, and so much more. This is a packed episode. I really hope you enjoy it. So Verdell, welcome. Thank you. <laughs> I'm so excited to have you here. And um, yeah, so I'm just going to talk about how I know you because I think that's an important context. So I know Verdell because I saw Verdell as a client for several years, I would say. And so um, I became acquainted with your work through experience. And then in that, became very interested in what you do and obviously built a relationship with you and how you um, add to our community, just kind of seeing your work and sending people your way as well. And so I wanted to have you on the podcast because A, you're a very interesting person outside from the, <laughs> the work that you do. <laughs> very eclectic, very cool. Um, but also the work that you do is really important. So today I'm hoping that we can talk a bit about you and also what it is that you offer in Kamloops and Vancouver. So you're not just in Kamloops. Yeah, so tell us a bit about you. Well, I came to the work through my own trauma, to my own experience. And when I first found somatic experiencing the work of Dr. Peter A. Levine, I didn't think I had trauma. I think we all might live in a fairy tale, thinking that our, our childhoods were maybe not fairy tale-ish, but okay, mm -hmm. that there was nothing highly traumatic. But in some ways, we sugarcoat our own lives because we don't get the opportunity to look inside of other homes when we're kids. Right. It's not until we're older that we get to look inside. And for the most part, I came from a very loving family, supportive family. My father's a little shut down, a little bit avoidant, but he's personally, physically available for you. There might not be any words for it, but if you need, if you have a headache and you need your head massaged or your neck massaged, he will do it and not complain and do it for hours. Uh -huh. And so going into study somatic experiencing was because I lost my mother in 2005 to an autoimmune disease, ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. Okay. And that led me to fleeing the country for two years. And when I came back, a friend just said that I needed to face reality that mm. I needed to get my life back together. Had you known that, sorry to interrupt, but had you known that you were fleeing the country or was it more like, I'm going to go travel, like that kind of? Well, I had already been traveling 
I started quite young about this sense of adventure, of curiosity, of wanting to go into the unknown. So I don't come with a lot of fears Mm -hmm. and I contribute that to my own childhood because it was safe. Because I was allowed to do what I wanted to do, there weren't any barriers, there weren't any restrictions, there was no curfew at night. We were trusted as young humans. At, you know, at 16 years old, my parents handed me a set of car keys and said, we trust you. And the onus was left on me of like, what does that mean? What is trust in that? You know, and they would just say, we trust you won't do anything silly. What's silly? <laughs> so... They weren't defining it for me. Right. I had to define it for myself. And that led me, when my mom left the world, she was always the one that was kind of like, go, go, go explore. Like, there's so much out there to see where my father was the one of like, stay home. Why leave? You always wanted a horse? I'll buy you a horse. And I was like, mm, the horse is too late. I'm out of here. So that was a, a piece of me even as a child as a teenager of kind of getting away to see if there was more out there i'm definitely a seeker and yes. extremely curious you are very much so and i love hearing you say i love hearing that context because i've always seen you like my perception of you is someone who doesn't have a lot of fear and just like how you navigate life there's just seems to be this underlying trust in yourself mm-hmm. that you exude you know, as a practitioner, but just also as a friend, I I feel that from you for sure. Yeah. It's also not only in myself, but it's also, I trust the universe. Yes, you do. Um, Even this last week, you know, I was just sharing with you that I have to move March 1st and my housemates, I live in a shared house. We've been looking for the last two months. March 1st is only seven days away. And everyone just said to me, you're so calm. And I was like, well, I'm leaning into the universe. The universe has something for me. And either it's going to provide a house or it's time that I separate from my housemates that I've been living together with for almost four years. And so it's just leaning into that. And trusting the process of what's going to come up. And also probably in that trusting that you can manage whatever is coming up entirely. Yeah. And I started to source, like I have lovely plants. I have 50 <laughs> plants that I was like, Oh, they can't go in storage. So, you know, a client said, Oh, I'll take your plants for as long as you need. And I have bikes and canoes and paddle boards. And someone said, I have a garage you yeah. can use. And so I was slowly sourcing out my belongings yeah. and just trusting that it was meant to be. But I really contribute that to my parents that we all develop our coping mechanisms and behaviors according to our environment and how our parents responded. Yes. And maybe as an adult, I see that maybe my father has a little bit of underlining lying um, anxiety if he has to be somewhere. You know, he's up super early. He wants to make sure he's on time. But I didn't notice that when I was a child. It he wasn't, wasn't putting that on you. Yeah, it wasn't prevalent. I wasn't having to take on or I also wasn't having to manage or take care of my parents. I was actually able to be a child. Which is huge. I mean, when we talk about trauma, I think right away, as you said, people think trauma is this like, you know, a war or a accident or gunshots or, you know, like that's how it's been 
portrayed in media and also discussed, they don't, we don't talk about these other ways that we can be impacted in our connection with ourself. And not being able to be ourselves as kids because of our environment is a really um, impactful experience for people. And entirely. And on that, Gabor Mate just released an animation that looks at why we lead or seek out coping mechanisms to feel better, to feel safer, is because we have not been able to be our authentic self. So when we've been mad, we couldn't express that to our parents because fear of punishment, loss of love, safety, maybe even food. Maybe we were sent to our rooms for three days. Right. And so I'm really fortunate for that, that that wasn't my experience. So it allows me to be with my clients from a very different perspective. And trauma, the real true definition of trauma or even stress is anything that causes overwhelm. And the best example I use to just exhibit overwhelm is how many times have we misplaced our keys? We need to be somewhere at a certain time and we go to go out the door and the keys aren't in our handbag or not on the hook where we left them. And all of a sudden we are flushed with stress chemicals. Yeah. And we get this panic of where are my keys? And we start tearing through the house, throwing up things and covering things to realize that our keys are actually in our handbag and we just didn't see them or feel them. Right. But that is overwhelmed. That's a stressful event. And it really depends on how fast we can recover from that. Okay. We would hope that by the time we get to our car, our system has come down enough that we're more back to a resting rate, right. a regulated state. But that's often not the case. We often get stuck in this high state of anxiety. Now we're at our meeting and now we're anxious, we're sweaty. You know, all of a sudden our pheromones are going, our <laughs> glands are going. We're starting to, oh gosh, I smell myself. Did I not put enough deodorant on this morning? And there's far too often that we spend too much time in the, these high states. Mm-hmm so sympathetically charged or in the complete opposite where we're parasympathically frozen right. or what's called a high tone dorsal. Right. And, and so you're talking about the nervous system specifically right now. The autonomic yeah. nervous yes. system. Okay. And so I have a question and I know we're going to get into this more and people are very interested in this subject because the other podcast I did on this topic with Melissa West, who you know, um, is one of the most listened to. So I'm glad that we're going to talk about it because um, you really are an expert in this area. But um, so, you know, what, how do people get to a place where they're unable to recover? Like is, yeah. So, you know, some of us can't recover when we lose our keys or it feels like we can't recover from that and regulate ourselves. And then the rest of the day ends up having this story of, now in the meeting, you forgot what you were going to say. You were supposed to do a presentation. And then all of a sudden you couldn't find the words for that. And I mean, you know the story. And then at the end of the day, you lost your debit card and then you really to come home and you're just like, you know, and all of that is kind of exacerbated by this state of overwhelm because you can't be present in your life. Correct. You right. get home and you thought you had your toddler in the back seat, and you turn around <laughs> to realize, darn, they're still at the daycare. Exactly. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. There are lots of tools. The first thing, I think the most important piece is that we have to trust we can recover. Right. 
but far too often our patterns have been prolonged. But we have to start with the shift in our mind of like, this is possible. I don't have to suffer as long as I'm suffering. Mm. And if we can mentally come that things can be different, right. then change is possible. Like things could be different for the rest of the day is kind of what you're saying. Like, okay, I lost my keys. I'm going to move on from this yeah. kind of. But what often happens is we get into this track and this well-worn track that in the past, when one thing went wrong, the whole day went wrong. Right. So now I'm preparing. I'm actually setting up all the requirements for the day to go wrong mm -hmm. rather than just stopping and taking a break, sitting down, possibly doing something. So one that I love to get people to do is a containment exercise and taking one hand and putting it underneath their arm and squeezing and the other comes over and just gently squeezing. And the moment I do this, if you're really watching my physiology, my whole breathing has just slowed down and I am now feeling my feet on the floor more and my sit bones. Yeah. It is spontaneous. And that's, that's because there's a nervous response, nervous system response happening when we do this. Correct. The autonomic nervous system loves containment. And this is out of the work of Grandin Templeton, who was on the autistic spectrum. And she, as a child, grew up on a farm and would go put herself in a cattle squeeze. Oh, yes. I've heard of this woman. And yeah. so when she squeezed herself, her system could actually come down. That is why we all of a sudden have weighted blankets. Mm -hmm. We have thunder vests for dogs, right? We are looking at trying to contain what is trying to possibly get away energy. Right. But this doesn't work for everyone. Mm -hmm. And we have to have the right amount of weight or pressure specifically for their nervous system. Right. So we are all truly Goldilocks inside. <laughs> it's too hot. It's too cold. It's too mushy. It's too stiff. Right. It's too soft. It's too hard. It's too bumpy. What is just right? And everybody's nervous system or everybody's different, but also like working with your own nervous system is, is really the learning. It's like learning what you need. And so another question I have for Dell is like when we have certain nervous system patterns or like what, you know, like you'd said a track. So you're preparing for the rest of the day. Those things are influenced by the past or your previous experience, your childhood, all of those things. Correct. And we can also add in epigenetics. Right. So, yes. <laughs> Thank you, grandparents, great-grandparents, great-great-grandparents. Fantastic. And world events. Right. Yeah. And so yeah. I think that's an important point, though, because we're in a culture right now of self-help, which is great. There's a lot of benefits of it. And a lot of people are seeking therapy and support. Um, but a lot, a lot of times it comes from this place of like, I can kind of, I can move beyond my family genetics. Like this idea that like, I'm an individual and I'm outside of that, like that my experiences shape me, but we kind of miss this part around our epigenetics and that, you know, we also have our parents in us, our grandparents, our culture, our history. And so we can't separate ourselves from that. No, we can't but we can change our mindset. And the more we change our own environment and how we perceive our environment, we can turn off those genes, those genetic 
it's like an imprint. So an example would be, I have a client who I've worked with the family and then the husband decided that he really wanted to meet me. He didn't really see the benefit possibly of working with the nervous system. And when I asked him what was the one thing he wanted to see change in his life, he said he, he had OCD beyond what he would consider OCD. And every day he would go out to his wood pile and measure it 20 times a day. The length, the height, the width, knowing that he has enough wood to last him 10 years. But he's obsessed with going out. And I don't know why, but all of a sudden I asked him, tell me about your grandparents. And he said, why? And I said, because I don't believe this is yours. It happens that he's Jewish. Both sets of grandparents were Jewish. Both sets of parents were in concentration camps and have the Auschwitz tattoos on them. And he is wondering why he is OCD. And the lack, not having enough, is really imprinted in his genes. Right. Due to his grandparents' experience. Of being Horrific. starved and all of the, like not, not having enough, not, not having enough, fearing your life every day, not knowing where your family went and what's the outcome. Right. Wow. That, um, I think that brings up so much because people can, you know, and including myself, like I'm not outside of this, but we can take on so much too thinking that it's all, all ours, right. That, you know, our OCD or our anxiety or addiction or things, you know, that that we're fully responsible for it. I mean, we are responsible for changing our lives and doing the work, but it's not all yours. No, it's not all yours. And I would even go to the fact that we each have a soul inside and the soul always has a choice, but this choice is often masked by sensations and feelings and emotions that we are craving. So possibly rather than making the right choice, we make the choice that feels fuzzy and warm, right. that comfort that we've never felt before. And that's where we get into really the addictive side of things. So pharmaceuticals mm-hmm. to drugs, gambling, porn, sex, even adrenaline sports. Mm-hmm. It's providing us something that we didn't have before in our homes with the love, the safety, the acceptance and c- attachment, connection, a healthy connection with our parents. Right. So there we are out seeking. And unfortunately, society would classify that having an addiction to adventure sports, to adrenaline is healthier than a, f- a drug addiction. And, but it's not, it's all the same. We are all craving the same thing at the end of the day. Which is comfort. Comfort, love, yeah. and belonging. Yes. I would agree with that. And you know, that perspective is, is really um, different than how we've looked at mental health for so many years, right? It's like, and this is something I've learned from you and I have very much appreciated, um, you know, about your practice and how you work with people is that we can come in with so many labels of our behaviors and our experience, right? Like I have anxiety or I have OCD or I have, you know, these are categories that we sometimes can be helpful for people. I want to acknowledge that. But when we get stuck on that part, 
there, it, there seems to be less compassion that can come self-compassion and even understanding as to like, what, where are these behaviors coming from? And like prior to me doing somatic experiencing, um, you know, I would have identified as having an anxiety disorder. Mm-hmm. You know, I would, I wouldn't have said that to people, but I would say, I have anxiety, I have anxiety. And that is not my experience now mm-hmm. at all, you know? And, um, looking at my nervous system and looking at my environment and the people that I was engaging with and the choices I was making is what changed my experience in my body and my life instrumentally, as you know. And you just mentioned the key point in your body. Mm -hmm. It shifted in your body. Yes. So when a client comes to see me, I don't want to take too much of their medical history of their trauma history because even them sharing it is too overwhelming. Yes. And the work that I do is really instrumental in the somatics, what's referred to as an interoception, the sensations that we notice inside of ourselves that deals with our physiology. Not everyone has access to this due to their own trauma and experience because some people, their bodies are not safe due to their experience in life. Because their sensations are so overwhelming? overwhelming or the only way to survive was to go numb, to freeze and only live up here because there was inappropriate touch. Right. Or there's so much anxiety and trauma in the house that they're walking along on eggshells all the time. They don't know when another parent's going to be explosive and something's going to fly across the room. Right. So these individuals are hypervigilant, constantly looking over their shoulders, jumpy of just like, oh my gosh, what's next? If they spend too much time noticing all these experiences, they're going to go crazy. Right. So their body, their brain, the autonomic nervous system says, okay, we're going to shut down these parts of your body so you don't feel anymore. So it's not so overwhelming. Okay. And when someone comes to see me, then we're looking at building often a new language, a new somatic language of can they touch into their body? And describe it. And it's like learning a new language. It is. And it's a really foreign language. So the example I've been using lately is Zonka. And people are like, Zonka, like, where's that from? It's the national language in Bhutan. It is so rare. So coming back into our bodies and learning this new language takes time. There's often a lot of frustration. I can't feel anything. I don't have words for it. But this all explains to me what someone has experienced. Also, people come in and they often have shame around what their addiction is or how they're coping. So maybe they are smoking every night marijuana. Maybe they do some hallucinogenics. Um, Some clients, you know, they have a coke addiction. And I'm not worried about that. I'm just saying thank you for sharing and being open and honest with me. Let's just put that on the side. Yeah. We need to work on the autonomic nervous system and feeling safe and secure and more regulated. And when you can sense and feel all of that, these other things won't have the lure. They won't have the enticement because you're all of a sudden feeling and getting that from yourself and possibly friends and not these others. Yeah. And I can, I can, you know, as you're speaking, I'm like, I can speak to this from experience. And also, you know, people I know, cause I've sent clients to you or other people I know that, that do this work. Um, 
you know, and they're like, I don't understand how this is working. Right. And so there's this idea of like, okay, it feels kind of voodoo. It feels kind of like what the hell's happening on the table. And I mean, all jokes aside, cause we do joke about that. Um, it is, it's so hard to explain because it's such an embodied experience. And for me, you know, there was this, there was a trust, there was a trust with you and also a trust in the process. And I actually didn't allow myself to read Peter Levine's books as I was a client, because I knew that I was hyper intellectualized and that as soon as I would start reading about the therapy, that it would, you know, I felt it might compromise my ability to trust it or to be in it. But, you know, the, the changes that happened in my life happened so, um, subtly, you know, it was like all of a sudden I would just choose different options and I would just, you know, and not that it didn't come without challenge. I'm not saying it was like easy, but it was different things were available to me. You know, I stopped smoking weed. I, yeah, engaged in different types of friendships. I chose different types of jobs and yeah. Even how you started to relate to your own body. Unbelievable. Completely different, completely. And so, you know, it wasn't like this thing that was cognitive, like, oh, somatic experiencing gave me this today. Like I, I noticed that change because of you know, now I could probably say, oh, well, that was definitely a change from somatic experiencing or learning how to regulate. But throughout the process, I just one day looked back and thought, holy shit, my life is so different. And I'm way more comfortable in my body and my life and my experience. And that's the magic of somatic experiencing. Peter Levine calls the work on one level soul retrieval. We have this vessel, but we're not inhabiting anymore because it wasn't safe for a variety of experiences and reasons in our lifetime. Mm -hmm. It could have been in utero, it could have been birth trauma, and then a series of other events. There's a difference between developmental trauma happening in our formative years, so five years or younger, which is nonverbal, but developmental trauma is long-term. So often in North America, kids stay in their parents' houses until 19 years old, so that's developmental trauma. And then we have shock trauma, which is a one, often a one-time experience where we're in a car accident and there's a start and stop time. We're in developmental trauma. There's not a really start or stop. Or a realization that it's wrong. That's right. right. So one thing about somatic experiencing and the nervous system work that I do, I'm, I'm really drawn to the touch work. Mm -hmm. I work with a table and it's where touch is able to go where words haven't been able to go. And often we've never been met with a human that is completely present with us, that has no expectations other than to be present and to create a safe container. And that is my job. Every time I sit down with someone, I am creating safety. And sometimes when I create safety, it's overwhelming for the individual. And so I met with a lot of tears and shaking because they've never, ever in their lifetime have this experience. And I just recently started working with a young woman in Vancouver who has so much trauma. We, I was like, we're not even going there. And just the fact of me putting my hands, and with individuals who come from a lot of physical trauma, I'm very careful and aware of where I am, What's my intention? Mm -hmm. What's my intention? 
how I'm holding the space. I'm also verbalizing every move. I'm going to place my hand now. I'm asking for permission so that we build this trust. The work can be very intimate, especially if I'm working with developmental trauma and someone hasn't had a loving mother or parent that was able to sit with them and stroke their cheek. Yes. And as I stroke their cheek or rub their head, a primitive reflex that's not integrated might appear. Mm -hmm. And so now we have a suckling response happening and they're saying, oh my gosh, what's happening? And me saying, oh, honey bunny, I'm just here with you right now. It's okay. Yeah. Let this happen. So somatic experiencing is on a very subtle level and the growth or the change in someone, the more subtle, the easier it is to integrate, to get mm. woven back into our tapestry. Because what trauma does is it takes our tapestry and it separates us. So now I have maybe a part out here that when I got scared, part of me left. I have another part here that only deals with people that are yelling at me. And so our tapestry has all these different layers and somatic experiencing helps bring them back. So we're one. Mm. We're back in our own vessel, in our own body, and it's safe. You know, so a piece that you said there that I think is really profound and also sets somatic experiencing aside from a lot of different trauma work is this idea that the more subtle, the easier it is to integrate. You know, so much of our culture is like quick, you know, like, let's do this quick. Let's heal quickly. Let's get over this trauma. Let's, you know, and a lot of people even come into the counseling office and they're like, I just want to be done with this. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but then what happens, and I see it in my office all the time, is that if we go too quickly, the system is just completely overwhelmed. And, you know, people can get to a place where they're backtracking, they're re-traumatized, you know, they're not integrating anything and can get stuck in this space for a long time because, you know, they're, they're taking the hard ass approach to healing. And that's what I often find is by the time someone finds me, they've tried everything. Mm -hmm. They have exhausted everything. Mysterious illnesses have them running around to every specialist, every test, every ologist, not getting answers because the tests come back normal in the average range. Mm -hmm. But the autonomic nervous system is very tricky. It's constantly changing. Milliseconds, it's constantly changing from, I'm relaxed. Oh, I'm now vigilant. I just heard a noise outside. Oh, I'm back relaxed. So it's hard to test it. So we often say working with the autonomic nervous system is invisible. Mm. And so how can I show up and not create waves in the system, rather that I'm just the container and the individual's nervous system can lean to me and can pull me into certain areas, but I have to be listening. I can't have an agenda. Mm -hmm. The only intention in my head is not to create overwhelm and to create safety. And so then, Verdell, in those moments, are clients then co-regulating with you, would you say? Yeah, that's yeah. The, the best way to put it, is that they're pinging off of me. So very similar to sonar, bats and whales pinging, 
oh, there's something out there. Oh, it's a solid structure. It's a soft structure. They're pinging with my nervous system. Luckily, my nervous system is on the calmer side of things. I was extremely shut down. I was in high tone dorsal for most of my life where I was a fainter, anything stressful. Oh, really? Okay. That my body perceived, not my mind, I would collapse. And it's only somatic experiencing that shifted me out of that old, ancient, prehistoric biological response. Because truly, we have three biological responses, fight, flight, freeze. And now we're adding fawning in there. Right. But my go-to was freezing, what's also referred to as the death faint. And I didn't realize that until I was finished my somatic experiencing training and in a near-death workshop with Peter Levine called Eye of the Needle. And the first thing he said, near-death experiences, fainting. And I went, oh shit. (laughs) Oh no. And that's where all of a sudden my trauma physiology showed up. It was based on the topic, just him saying fainting and me realizing, oh gosh, that's traumatic. It didn't feel traumatic because I just, I just dropped. Yeah. Right. You come to and you get back up just like a possum. (laughs) (laughs) So coming back that my system is moving more and more into regulation. I would say in the last two years, I have gotten more access to my sympathetic nervous system to more expression. Um, I have clearer boundaries. I'm able to communicate now where before I was so frozen, I didn't even have access to my emotions. I didn't have tears that worked. They were frozen. Literally my tear ducts had dried up. And crying wasn't something that you could access. No. And even now it's, it's still really limited. Now my eyes water and it's still working on trying to connect the emotion to the physical water. Mm. And I'm 46. And so that is a long time to be without access that. So I'm constantly working on my nervous system to be more and more regulated. And I can see how my life is changing. You met me 10 years ago and I wasn't able to speak. I was shy. I was trying to hide in the back of the room, blend in with the wallpaper. And now I'm like, (laughs) Hi, (laughs) I demand this and you're not going to cross this line and this is what I want in life. It's very different even in my own physiology. Mm -hmm. And so for people, I mean, I think an important piece for people to understand is that we all have things going on in our nervous systems, right? Like, because this idea of pathology, like we pathologize ourselves like, oh man, I'm so messed up because I experience overwhelm or anxiety and we can there's a sense of drama that can come from that, right? Within ourselves and shame. But I think the truth is, is that, you know, almost all of us have experienced overwhelm or trauma in our lives. We all do. Yeah. And what we have to be really careful about is not trying to say, oh, yours was worse than mine. Yes. No, it has nothing to do with that. Every nervous system experiences their experience differently. We could take identical twins with the same genetic makeup, have them experience the same trauma, and they'll both report it differently. It affected their system, their body differently. Yes. So we really have to have compassion. There is no box 
to put someone in. Oh, you had a car accident. You go here. Mm -mm. Our filing cabinet, we each have a filing cabinet of all these experiences. (laughs) Some of the filing cabinet has put in a file that is do not touch, do not open. The key has been hidden. And often it's part of our childhood and we'll have childhood amnesia. Whole sections of our childhood we can't remember. Mm-hmm. And that just shows how stressful it was. Okay. But when we have capacity and more regulation in our system, believe me, the autonomic nervous system in your brain will slowly filter out these experiences and bring them into a session. Yes. I see it so often in counseling as well. As soon as, you know, there's more safety in the body, more safety in the self and in the room. You know, all of a sudden it's like, oh, I remember this thing. Or, you know, people come in and they say, is there something wrong with me? I don't remember any of my childhood. And it can feel very alarming, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, you know, it's like, well, no, there's not something wrong with you at all. <laughs> yeah. That's just how your body has responded to your childhood. And I think the big thing I would love to stress is that we all have the innate ability to heal. No matter what has happened to us, no matter how many things we've tried and they haven't had the results we wanted, we all can heal from horrific, traumatic events and subtle, overwhelmed events that we all have the ability to shift, to heal and to have better lives. Yes, I think I agree a hundred percent. And I also think that the proof is very obvious. Like, look how adaptable we are as humans. Like, I think if you question that capacity, you just look around and (laughs) think about human nature and how we, we do have the capacity to evolve and to adapt and to find solutions. um, And that exists within us as well. And it's only within us. I can't have a partner and say to my partner, okay, come, let go to counseling, go see Verdell. It has to be their soul, their initiative, their drive to shift. Many people are very happy. They're content with the status quo, but there's other people that want the very best thing. They want to feel the best. They want to be the best version of the self and have the easiest um, and longest longevity in life. And so it just depends where you are. Clients come in to see me and they say, how long is this going to take? How many sessions? (laughs) And I say, well, it's not about that. It's about you deciding what is good enough. Mm -hmm. And some of my clients, it's never good enough. We are looking to be even better. And what's great about that is from a physiological, from a nervous system response is we are all carrying around a platter And on this platter is all the stresses we carry in our body and in each system in our vessels and our veins, um, you know, heart conditions, our fluid system, our fascia. And if a traumatic event happens later on today, I'm putting more stress into that system. And my system, my platter can only take too much before I start to fall apart and I end up having all these really concerning symptoms that I can't figure out why. And I end up now seeing doctors and having all these tests, but nothing is changing here. We want to go and see someone who's working with the nervous system doing touch work way before we get to all of a sudden it falling apart, coming Mm -hmm. undone. And the lighter our platters, the less stress 
on our arteries, our veins, our hearts, our kidneys, liver, pancreas, spleen, so that we can live a long life and not be what my father said yesterday, hmm, the golden years, just spending all my time going to the hospital, seeing specialists, wearing a heart monitor now, you know, just had a knee replacement, back surgery, one thing after another, try this medicine. And I say, well, you could go see someone who does somatic experiencing. My father, there's nothing wrong with me. (laughs) So there has to be a willingness. The soul wants to see or have something different. Yeah. And it, you're, it's, it can be so painful when you're is maybe someone who's a seeker or like your soul, as you say, wants to get better and you're in partnership with someone who doesn't necessarily have the same um, passion or drive for that. Or, you know, you love your family, as you say, and you see your family suffering. And, you, you know, I've had this conversation with my mom so many times. And last summer, we agreed to never have it again, because <laughs> we've had it so many times where I'm like, Mom, you just have to, you know, like, this is what you should do. And you're in this pain. And why don't you do some counseling or some, you know, personal work? And Um, you know, this last summer, she said to me, I don't, well, she said a couple of things that were profound. One was like, I don't want to open that up one, which pretty insightful. Yeah. And I'm actually pretty happy with how my life is, you know, even despite the pain or whatever, but she's like, I'm happy with that. And then at that point I had to say, okay, we're never going to have this conversation again because here I am for years trying to push, please do this work. You can be better. You can feel better, but it has to come from inside. It can't be a guilt process because they'll never stick. It won't work. Yeah. And that's the hard part as a, you know, as a child, as a daughter, I see how my dad's life and his health could be so different. And when I, like you, when you make a suggestion about seeing someone, counselor, getting help, using, my dad has insurance. I was like, use your insurance. Like (laughs) you could have a hundred massages every year and you've never had one in your lifetime. (laughs) But uh, he doesn't realize that it's coming from a compassionate place that I don't want to see him suffer. Right. And I see options that lead to less suffering. Because you've experienced them too. But that's my lens. Right. Yes. That's not his lens. And so what I can say to individuals, if we have a parent or parents or siblings or a partner that's not on that path, it doesn't matter. Let them be where they are. Mm -hmm. If we're doing our own work and I'm working at the nervous system level to shift things, inevitably they will shift because our dynamics are now changing. The energy, the frequency is not the same between us. So the more work I do on myself, my relationship is changing with my father. I think it's to the benefit. I'm not sure my dad would so much agree (laughs) because his quiet little girl who never had boundaries or talked back (laughs) has arrived (laughs) in her forties and it's shaken him. It's like shook him up a little bit. He doesn't know what to do when I now stand and say, you can't do that or you can't speak that way or 
This is unacceptable. And so there is going to be a little bit of a tension and adjustment in that. Mm -hmm. But we just have to be patient and come with so much love, compassion, and empathy. I have so much empathy for what my father has experienced in his lifetime Mm -hmm. and how he has chose to really try not to repeat those experiences in my lifetime. And so that's kind of like, I think it's the, the battening down of his trauma to not look at it because possibly it opens too much up. That's a beautiful them. way of putting it. I, I think that that is what a lot of people do to protect their children and um, because it, it doesn't feel like there was another option at that point. You know, as you were speaking about that, I was thinking about this, you know, when we focus on our personal work, when we do it, when we do our work, how inevitably we change, not that we change, well, we change the dynamic. And in changing the dynamic in relationship and friendship and family, you're bringing new things to light for people. And yes, they still have a choice of what they do with that, you know, how they react to your new way of being. But I can also say that in my experience, both in relationship and in family, that I definitely haven't always done it with grace or compassion. That's for sure. There was a lot of anger at first. And I think people go through that phase in boundary setting or how communication. Um, but things have shifted, you know, things have really shifted. And I think about my brother and I's relationship and how it was just a really challenging relationship for both of us for many years. And in the, you know, I never pushed him to do the work. You know, I, I had said a couple of times, like, maybe you should see a counselor or, you know, maybe you could <laughs> use some support. And then in the last year, you know, he started doing that on his own. Mm-hmm. And because I was in a place of compassion and no longer anger, when he started bringing up some experiences that we had shared in our childhood, I was able to be there with him. And, you know, have compassion for how he behaved and say, like, I'm not mad at you for that anymore. Mm -hmm. And it was beautiful. But if I didn't do my work, there's no way in hell that that conversation would have went the way that it went. That's right. Because you have taken the energy, the charge out of your system that now when he brings it up, you're not explosive, you're not angry, you're not attacking. And so you can create this container for him to process. And I think that's the biggest piece is that we need to become better listeners, more active listeners, that when someone is talking is to let them finish what they're saying and not jump in. Well, when I did this or that made me feel is just to hang out with them and let them have the moment. Our time is going to be another time. Mm -hmm. But I think what's happened is that when we were kids, we weren't often given that time. Parents are raising their kids differently now than 30 years ago, 20 years ago, 40 years ago. But we weren't able to speak as children. We were told, you know, if we said no, our parents said, yes, you will. Because I said so. Correct. And so we never had that opportunity to speak up. So we were constantly trying to fight and get a word in, but we were never being listened to. We were always being shot down. Mm So here we are as adults, as an adult, that the first time I had a confrontation with someone, I didn't have the tools because I never had that in my childhood where I could actually have a healthy 
disagreement and argument and have you believe in something and me believe in something different. And we just come to an agreement that we're going to care to disagree, but agree. Right. And not hate each other. <laughs> right. And not hold resentment or be passive aggressive and give the silent treatment for the next five days. Yeah. So we weren't modeled that. So there I was in my 30s being like, you know, something heated come up and I would like be almost flandering of like trying to back out of it. And I would kind of run away because I didn't have the tool set. And then finally I was like, okay, I have to get, I have to figure out these tools. And the more I came from not being frozen and had a little bit more ground and life force running through me, I could be present. And every day I'm working on being a better communicator. Every day I'm trying to clear what is happening in my life. Mm -hmm. So if I'm feeling a way, I'm going to talk about it with that individual. I'm going to text that individual being like, this is my perspective of what's going on. Mm -hmm. Can you share what's going on for you? Because often we get out of, I love this word, out of our facts box. <laughs> and I start making up a story, creating this thing, often based on my past experience, which is not a fact. Right. So in order it's to- perception. Yeah. In order to stay in my facts box, I must seek the other individual's ability to communicate with me to let me know, are my perceptions accurate or are they misaligned and how can we align them? But that takes two willing individuals. It does. And, but in that process, you also create compassion, right? Because when you can hear what another person's experience is, you know, that's why it's so important to speak from an experience, whether that's an emotional experience or sometimes we can only access a physical experience in a, like when we say confrontative, what feels like a confrontative communication. But like in our relationship, sometimes, you know, with Tim, if something's come up that I'm having a hard time talking about and I feel a reaction in my body and I can't access words because this comes up, I will say, I'm feeling really overwhelmed in my body right now. And even by saying that, it takes the charge of the conversation down because you're letting the other person in on what's happening for you in your experience versus saying, you're being such an asshole. Why? <laughs> you know, because as soon as you say name call or bring anything that isn't an experience into the room, it complicates things and we, we move out of our actual experience and vulnerability and compassion isn't invited into the conversation. Entirely. I have a recent experience. So I am with a, a partner, I'm being intimate, I'm receiving touch. And because I haven't been able to feel in the past, touch is new to me. I love touch. I grew up being touched, but I can't connect when I'm touched to an emotional response. Mm -hmm. And so just the other day, I had an experience of having my ankles massaged and all of a sudden I had sensation in my hands where my hands started to buzz and I had all of this energy. And the individual saying, oh, is, if, is this touch on your ankles fine? And I'm like, I can't feel my ankles right now. I just have all of this energy forming in my hands. So I need to convey to that person that I need them to slow down what they're doing 
so I can come into touch with what is being elicited in my body that maybe has always been there and I'm just becoming aware of it, Mm. or maybe it's something new, but it has me so curious. I'm like, I need my ankles touched again so I can start to experience what is happening because I have no idea. But again, that comes from my body being so frozen and just starting, it's almost like a light bulb went off in my wrist and my hand and then the other one and me being like, what's happening right now? Oh my gosh. I can't, I can only focus on this. And it lasted for 20 minutes after they stopped touching me for 20 minutes. I was like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, what's going on? And it was pleasurable. And I'm, I'm not afraid of feeling my body, but for some that would be extremely overwhelming. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. And I'm sure for even some of the people listening, they're like, what the hell? Right. It's like, even just these ideas are talking about these things about sensations in our bodies and our bodies, um, like pleasure, all like it's taboo to even communicate yeah. about, right. You know, we've, we've really disconnected like our physical health from our mental health. It's changing our but. physical health, our mental health, our sexual health. Yes. And What's really unfortunate is what you just said. Society doesn't speak about these at all. Yeah. It's like we've said, okay, here's this little thing. And maybe with our closest girlfriend, we're going to talk about, but how can we openly talk about? So I often say to my clients, I'm an open book that if they want to ask a question, I'm not going to hold back. And it's up to them to say, I've, I've heard enough, um, maybe don't talk so openly about it. I'm waiting, I'm creating safety that they can provide boundaries, even verbally. It's not just physical touch. Mm-hmm. But we need to have that safety that we can have these conversations openly. And so that's really counter to what, you know, in the world of therapeutics, what we've been taught around ethics of relationship, right? That as therapists, we are supposed to have boundaries with our clients. And, um, you know, there's this, this concern of transference and counter transference. And, um, and I'm, you know, I, I'm critical of that myself. You know, I think that it needs to be client led, but if I have a client that comes in and I've had clients that are like, what's your daughter's name? How old is she? What do you do? Where did you come from? You know, and I think to myself, they absolutely need to know. That's right. For their safety. Oh, do you have a partner? Do you, you know, and I do get a hundred questions about these things or people asking me, you know, it's, so there's a difference between sharing that stuff, but then also using a session to put your stuff, like having the intention of putting your stuff in the room. Right. Those are two different things. Correct. Yes. There's also a piece. I've started doing more videos, more YouTube videos. And even with clients, it's easiest for me to share my experience because my experience growing up was it's felt sense. Mm-hmm. So I'll say to them, you know, when our nervous system is shut down and we have a hard time making boundaries. When I was a child, this is what I experienced. Mm -hmm. And as I shifted, this is now what I have experienced. Right. And how it's being met. 
So the more I'm able to share personal experiences and give really good examples, it helps them. It really helps them. It does. It does. And I think, and I'm not a clinician, so I'm trained in somatic experiencing, somatic practicing, transformational experience, brain, the Feldenkrais. So I'm more on the body worker side of things, is that I'm really, really conscious that it's good to share what happens in a body. Mm -hmm. What might be normal? What won't be normal? What might be, we're looking for the nuances. And we have to be careful. There's too many taboo subjects that, you know, a book, a license is saying you can't talk about this. You can't cross this line. You can't see a client outside of your office. Mm -hmm. To me, that's detrimental to my clients because I want clients not only in their nervous system get more regulation, but how do they ever have a healthy relationship outside of my office if anyone in their life is not healthy? Right. So who's going to model that for them? Well, and it's attachment, right? So we talk about attachment and how important it is. You know, people come into our offices and they share, they're so vulnerable with us. They allow us in to these places with them. And then we tell them, you know, we can't, you know, when I see you on the street, I'm not going to talk, you know, like that's very confusing based on the human experience. And frankly, this is a pretty masculine way of looking at things, very medical model. Mm -hmm. But I, I, what I want to speak to too, though, Verdell is like, that's why it's so important when we're doing this work, whether you're body worker, you're a body worker, or you're a mental health worker, to do your own work mm-hmm. so that you're conscious of what you're bringing into those relationships with your clients. Because there is an inherent, I hate the word, but like a power dynamic or a mm-hmm. pedestal that we're put on because we are supporting people, right? And so it's sometimes that can happen. And if you're not careful and you're not really asking yourself, like, what is my intention here? Um, you know, there is a possible, there's possibility for harm, I guess. Yeah, there, there is. And manipulation. Yes. So I always say to my clients that it's really important when they're seeking someone to help them heal, that they go and try a few different practitioners because they need to find the practitioner that is the best suited for them. And it might not be long-term. They might just need something from one practitioner and they yes. need to go to another practitioner. Yeah. We have to realize that most people that are in social work, in counseling, psychiatry, psychology, all come from trauma. What are you talking about? I have zero trauma. <laughs> there is a magnet attraction. Yeah. And so we have to be doing our own work. Yeah. It's the wounded healer. You know, like we do, we, we walk that path and then we want to help people. But you have to keep doing the work. And that's the key. We have to keep doing the work. Yes. Life keeps happening outside. Yeah. So I can't say, oh yeah, I went to counseling school. You know, I now have my master's and I've done all these other courses, but that was 10 years ago. No, we have to be seeing someone on a regular basis Mm -hmm. because sitting with someone and hearing trauma can also be traumatizing depending on how we're able to process and digest it, not just in our brains, but on a chemical neurochemical level. Absolutely. And I even think about, you know, in my practice this last year, so I've been really only like private practice for the last year. Um, I was working as a clinician and such, but noticing there was a point like mid year where I started to feel it in my body. 
like, and this might sound crazy, but like postural changes and things Mm -hmm. from sitting with people and like this, almost like this burdening of like moving like into a hunched position. And like, obviously that happens from being seated, but there was, there was something else. And one of the things that came up in my supervision is I was conceptualizing, like, I just, there's a lot of suffering that I have to hold is what I said. Mm -hmm. And my supervisor, Jennifer Nagel, she's amazing. um, She goes, why are you holding the suffering? Or, you know, something that kind of inquired about that. And I was like, why am I holding the suffering? Mm -hmm. And she's like, our job is to hold the hope in the room. That's right. You know, and it was like this massive light bulb for me Mm -hmm. because of course I have conceptualized that too. Like, obviously I look at people and I'm like, there's so much hope for you in your life. But the thing that I was attaching to, or the thing that I was really struggling with or feeling exhausted by was this idea that I'm holding the suffering for people. That is from your childhood trauma. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we know. (laughs) And it was like, kaboom, so much shifted for me. And it was like in those sessions, when I felt the suffering show up in the room, Mm -hmm. I would just be like, there it is. This isn't mine to take. And this isn't mine to transform. This suffering can just be here, you know, like, but let's find, let's find that those other pieces and let me grab those. There are families there's houses out there and they're like family units that focus on dwelling on the negative, dwelling on the pain, yes, dwelling on, I'm never going to get anything in my life. And then there's families out there that are, everything is great. I just lost my dog, but everything is fine. Or I can do anything I want. I can accomplish anything. I can change anything I want. So we just have to take a look at ourselves and see where we're putting our energy. Yeah. Are we focusing on the negative, the hopelessness, hopeless, Mm -hmm. or are we always like, yeah, okay, this thing shitty happened and I'm going to try harder and I'm going to go and try and effort and change things. And I think what is another whole podcast is talking about spiritual bypass. Oh my goodness. Can we talk a little bit about that? (laughs) So we cannot Zen away our trauma. Our emotions, our memories, our pain, suffering, that we just can't do a whiteboard wipe and say, okay, it's all going away. I'm just going to sit and meditate and breathe because we are, we need to address it. The only way through healing or trauma is going through it and getting a repair or being to elicit an incomplete response into a complete response. But sitting and zenning it away is not going to work. Right. And I've spent two years living in Bhutan in a Buddhist country and seeing how it's very different in the Eastern world compared to how it is in the Western world. And even Peter Levine says, no one should meditate if they're nearly dead. So if you're shut down on the parasympathetic side of things, you need to learn how to go and run a marathon. Yes. I remember you telling me this actually, because this was, you know, I was in the (laughs) middle of doing like meditation and yoga and, and, um, you were like, you need to move your legs. I forget what we were talking about, but you're like, no, no, like you probably need to run. And like, I'm like, "My, my knees are sore and my legs are sore. And you're like, you need to move your legs. Like the last thing you need to be doing is sitting and meditating. And I was like, 
bing, you know? And so when I work with clients, it's very similar where, you know, meditating can be good, but like not when you're nearly dead, Mm -hmm. not when you're dissociating. No wonder it's so easy. Let's just talk about how easy it is when you're, you know, dissociated to just sit. For sure. But also when we sit, um, it's unsupported. Um, If we go and do a 10-day Vipassana retreat, it's unsupported, no talking. And what happens is stuff will start to bubble up and kind of the atmosphere is, oh, we're just supposed to let it wash away or breathe it out our nose, notice sensation, and then just let it pass. Well, it's not going to pass because that thing is popping up for us to address it. Mm -hmm. And what they're finding, there's an amazing human um, who is studying the detrimental effects of meditation. And it's out of uh, Princeton University. And her name is, I just lost her name. Her last name is Brighton. And she didn't publish her PhD for a few years because she was afraid of the backlash she was going to get. But they are now seeing in studies of individuals that are sitting for 10 days that the rate of suicide and deep depression, suicidal tendencies is on the rise. Hmm. So we have to be really careful of how much we're guiding people into breathing practices, Mm -hmm. meditation practices, and even some assisted um, ayahuasca ceremonies, MDMA supported therapy. Because if someone isn't supported in the right area of their nervous system, in a certain part of regulation in their nervous system, we're actually sending them off to be more traumatized, to become more dysregulated, and to really come apart and possibly ruin their life. Like It is really, really severe, um, the consequences, and I don't think people are willing to talk about it. No, we're not. And you know, it like, yes, I, I agree. And it's something that I've come to in my practice, also in my experience. But, um, you know, people, when I talk, people say, well, why don't you get every client to meditate or, um, because of my history or schooling and, um, practice in that. And I'm way more, um, cautious of that. And the first thing I actually say to people is you need to get outside. You know, it's like, that is number one. It's like before even sitting on a cushion, Mm -hmm. I want you to get outside and I want to see, I want you to practice being in your body and outside your body at the same time. And what does that look like? You know, tuning in and then tuning out, Mm -hmm. tuning in, (laughs) tuning out, Um, because that's more regulating for many people than sitting on a cushion. And, you know, I've seen what's happened you know, for people that have been practicing these things for a long mm-hmm. time. And with ayahuasca, you know, um, as you know, I've done an ayahuasca ceremony and I was heavily supported while I was doing that. And I don't know if I was seeing you at that time. I might've been. I think just shortly after. Just shortly after. And I had been going to counseling and I was, you know, at least I had resources around me. But one of the things that I had noticed when I was in the ceremony was there was a lot of people there for a quick fix. Right. And that's really what we're getting at here is like, okay, if I do ayahuasca, I'll spiritually heal everything and I'll be okay. Um, but I had met someone in Nelson and I forget 
his name, but his mom was a psychologist and her practice was primarily made up of people who did ayahuasca trips and went off the deep end. And I had found this out afterwards, but one of my biggest criticisms of doing that ayahuasca ceremony was that there was no support for people following the ceremony. Mm-hmm. And I'm a big advocate for this. Like if you're doing these things, you can't just go and do a crazy spiritual ceremony and then have no support integrating it. And lots of times when you do ayahuasca, you have memories or experiences show up in your body. And that's why it can be so healing. But if you don't know what the fuck's happening or what to do with that, you are just putting yourself in a state of complete overwhelm. Correct. Yeah. And you know, then you see people go back and do it again and again. And I had a very good friend that Mm. was doing ceremonies back to back. Hoping for a different result. Yeah. And then it just like, she just changed. And you know, it's like I was working with a man named Martin, um, come to do you know Martin? Mm-hmm. He does astrology. Anyways, um, we were talking, we were doing some dream work together and he's very, like, he's very anti, um, ceremony psychedelics. And, uh, he says, while you're in this state or he's like, yeah, you, you go and do all these ceremonies. Meanwhile, um, the shadows creeping in the back door. And I thought that was really profound. Particularly with ayahuasca, it's a male drug. Right. And it's very aggressive. So we go in hoping we're going to have this blissful experience, but it's like throwing dynamite in and blasting everything open at once. It's not like a woman, how she would tip in and like slowly peek in the door and go, Oh, would I like to go in and close the door? No, you have no option. So it blasts everything and you're going to get whatever shows up. So trauma, it could even open up past life. It could be even demonic yeah, and highly unregulated, unsupported and terrifying. Totally terrifying. (laughs) Totally terrifying. And, you know, it's interesting, though, because the experience is there. The voice in the experience has said to be actually female of nature, right? Of the the medicine, the medicine. Um, But spiritual bypassing, I I just want to get back to that because, you know, there's also this this thing that happens where people do this work, like say it's ceremony or meditation or yoga or self-help practices. And there's an ego that gets created through it and this idea that they're healed, but it's not an, it's often not, I don't want to say it's not always, but it's not often an embodied experience, right? So like it's not happening in their nervous system. Correct. And so then there's still a lot of conflict, maybe that interpersonal conflict or things that are happening, similar patterns that keep showing up in their life. And then there's, there can be a lot of blame happening because like, I've done all this work. Mm-hmm. It's obviously you. Do, do you know what I'm oh, talking about? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We can really will how we want to look out in society. And this is referred to as a faux window. So a false window. Are you following me where I'm going? So I create this faux window and I'm managing all these pieces around me, how I respond to a certain thing, how I look at yoga, how I hold myself, what emotion I let to come in. And I'm all of these pieces I'm juggling. And I think my life is beautiful and amazing. But if I get run down and I can't hold all these pieces up of what I've created, the perception of my ego, and one piece drops, I come undone. Yeah. And I'm, 
I say I've done all this work, what's happening? No, we're living in a faux window. That is not a healthy place to be. Right. Because it's all based on like, it's based on intellectualizing things, right? And, and like um, controlling yourself and willpower versus like actually having a body or an experience that is innately or inherently making these choices. Is that? Yeah. And subconsciously we might be doing this. We might not realize, but an example might be OCD. Like I need everything (laughs) to be perfect (laughs) and the dishes to be done by my partner every day. And the floor swept and this, and I need to look a certain way to go out the door. I need to be on time. I need to make sure that I've had my special tea for the day. I'm doing all of these things to make me feel safe and put together and presented well, but it's taking a lot of fucking energy. Right. Because ma- I have to manage all these things. And if I don't do one thing in the day, it's like I'm coming undone. I see. I see. So it's more about like controlling safety. It's like creating safety through control. And when we false, false, false safety, but it's like the illusion of safety. And just, uh, you know, like with OCD specifically, like that's culturally kind of how we talk about OCD. But even people with OCD actually have like intrusive thoughts then that come up on top of the, you know, creating safety. There's like the intrusive thought piece that's so big. Yeah. Yeah. And I always add that because I have a friend who has OCD and, you know, she's always like, it's not just about the cleaning, you know, it's like the intrusive thoughts that are really the disturbing part. So I just want to name that, but that's really important. And that's been an experience of myself. I know we're kind of giggling about that, but it's like this external control because there's a feeling of safety because the internal feeling of safety isn't there. And you can keep it together for a period of time. But yeah, when then, when life actually becomes stressful and maybe you can't manage that, then it like, it's really uncomfortable when all of that comes crashing down and you're left with the same nervous system and the same like overwhelming experience of chaos and lack of safety in your body and then the world. Well, and your partner who doesn't understand what the fuck just happened. Why did you just become explosive at them? Right. Cause you moved the shelf. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And it's yeah. just the one thing that was out of your control yeah. that was too much for your system. You couldn't hold, you didn't have another extra arm to hold that piece up as well. And so then this happens. So coming back to like the spiritual bypassing is like, this can happen with practices too, right? So right. it's like meditation and yoga. And if I do this and I do that and breathing, yes, if I control my breathing, everything is going to be okay. Right. So the hardest piece for me, when someone comes to my table if they've been in meditation, breathing practices, or yoga, because the whole time they're controlling their breath. So how can we get to their authentic nervous system if they're overriding it all the time? Yes. So, okay. So my question for you on this, Verdell, is like, you know, because breathing practices, like when you're in a panic attack, for instance, people use breathing practices to come out of a panic attack. Hmm. And so is that problematic? Well, what we're seeing there is right? Why are we having a panic? Yes. So can we be with that for a bit? Without having to change, try to control it with the breath. Correct. So how can we be present and let it naturally, the nervous system naturally deescalate? 
Or we come in and we try to put a Band-Aid on it and, and stop it right away. So it's no different than the child having a tantrum and we coming along saying, stop the tantrum. Yes. And so Gordon Neufeld, who, do you know Gordon Neufeld? Yes. yes. And so he says this too. So I did a training with him on anxiety and he was like, mindfulness practices, no for children. Like do not teach kids how to control their breath. You know, you need to allow your children and the, you know, the kids that you're working with to move through their emotions and not try to interrupt that process. And having already taken SE level one, I was already very much like, I was like, "Uh uh-huh, I know that. But, you know, I'm very cautious about, um, breathing practices. Um, you know, I, I did just post something on Instagram about square breathing, but it's, it's because I don't quite understand. I didn't quite understand, you know, why it's problematic. Mm -hmm. Our breathing organically, we're pre-programmed. Our breath is going to match our internal experience and our environment. So if a bang goes outside, I hope my breathing gets elevated. Before it didn't, because I was so shut down, I didn't have a startle response. Right. But when I got a startle response, it was like, oh my gosh, my heart's racing, my breathing. I don't want to say, oh, 10 slow, deep breaths right now. Just breathe through it. I want to let that physiology and neurochemicals move through my system because it is healthily responding to something. Right. The same with the panic attack or the breathing, hyperventilating. Why are we hyperventilating? Can we let it roll through with support? Someone could come and touch and help to regulate but we don't want to change and instruct someone to change their breathing in that moment. Okay. So then in that moment, I'm just kind of speaking of maybe what a client might talk about. Um, like feeling f- the fear of dying, it comes up mm-hmm. often for people in panic attack, heart racing. And so there's this fear of not being able to survive it, mm-hmm. right? That's a big piece. And so you know, they might not have someone around to support them mm-hmm. in a safe place and be there with them and tell them like, you're, you're not going to die. And so like trying to control the breath becomes, but you know, as I'm saying this, sorry, I'm just <laughs> realizing as I'm talking, it never fucking works anyways. Mm-hmm. Right. So we tell clients and frankly, I don't actually tell clients to do this mm-hmm. just to be fair, but it is a common practice within, you know, therapeutics to say like in a panic attack, like this is how you can regulate yourself, like mm-hmm. try to control your breathing. But clients will always say, I couldn't do that. Um, one of the things that I do suggest is people to walk outside, mm-hmm. to like move outside in some fresh air and just like change the temperature of the room of, of their body, just kind mm-hmm. of like move around. Or sometimes I say like, maybe you actually need to go for a walk. And mobilize your body a bit. Or go and connect with a tree. Touch a tree. Interesting. Okay. Put the back on your tree. So like co-regulate with nature in a way. Yeah. 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 And it's, again, it's the environment that's supporting the change. Okay. So not the, not controlling the body for the change. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. That's huge though, right? Because we're over, we're constantly taught to override and to shift what's going on. Yes. Never were we a child who our parents said, great, you're having a tantrum. Let all of that energy out right now. Wow, that is fantastic. (laughs) How can I support you in having this tantrum? And be okay with the discomfort. I mean, Joni's in this place right now where tantrums are like, it's happening, right? And I have found myself and I can you know, there's in the beginning, I would want to comfort her. So there would be like this, 
move towards her and want to touch her and hold her. Um, and then the response from that was like, absolute, don't, don't touch me. Right. Get and then away from get me. away from me. And almost like you're realizing you're just exacerbating the issue in that moment. <laughs> She's probably going to hurt herself. And so then, you know, learning like, that's not the response, even though I want to hug her. Mm-hmm. Um, so stepping back and realizing that the most uncomfortable part of that entire situation is how I feel helpless. Yeah, exactly. It's how I feel in her suffering or what appears my perception is her suffering. Um, And that's been a huge learning curve for me. And even how I work with clients too. It's like when we, you know, cause she gets over it and she's fine. Mm -hmm. And I know the mechanics of that because of my training that I need to just like let her move through it Mm -hmm. and not give her what she's asking for if she can't have it. You know? Yeah. Being able to process from beginning to completion in a time-sensitive period. If she stayed in that panic or the tantrum for five hours, we're going to have to change the environment. Right. So maybe mom needs to leave the room. Yeah. But it's really hard for a mom not to be in control of that and to watch the suffering, the pain, possibly the harm. But the best thing as a parent we can do is sit down and just announce, mommy is right here. You just let mommy know if you need anything. Yes. And I do do that now. And observe what you notice in your own system. Mm. Because what will also come up is that you are never allowed to do that as a child. So all of a sudden you're going to start to get mirroring. And all the mirror neurons are firing of like, wow, how many times did I want to do that? And all this sensations coming up because of what you're witnessing. Yeah. And so we can just stay present with what's going on in our own self and have curiosity around it and leave the child, as long as they're not going to harm themselves, they're not doing self-harm, to have that experience happen and de-escalate. Right. And it happens. They do get through it. And I, I but I, I just want to acknowledge for parents listening, it's like, that, what we're talking about, is not an easy thing, right? No. And that's the letting go of control because you're right. We have been taught to control our bodies yeah. so much. And it's, <laughs> it's, it's crazy mm. how embedded it is. And so seeing yoga or medit- we didn't really talk about yoga, but like meditation and breathing as just another way. And I think people think, okay, if I change my breathing, then I'll change my nervous system. Yeah. And so that, that doesn't happen. No, because I'm giggling because I work with a family in Vancouver and they have a 15-year-old and I've seen the 15-year-old a couple of years ago and she just came. So I saw her when she was 13 and she talked about what's going on in the family. And so the next day I saw dad and he was like, oh, I really want to talk about it. And I was like, no, this is your session. But um, at one point I was able to write a note to send home with him for him and his wife. (laughs) And on one side it had control and everything that control does. So constriction limits, um, makes you angry. You feel unseen. Um, I forget what it lets you become avoidant, um, possibly allows you to want to like kick back and be angry, like be aggressive against it. On the other side, I had trust. And what does trust do? We can relax. We go with the flow. We can ease into it. It's some freedom. Yeah. And we get to make our own decision. And so I sent it home with him and I said, you and your wife both sit down and look at this and you tell me what column you would like to be in and held in. It was pretty clear that (laughs) they both want to be in the trust and not trying to control 
how their lives are looking, how their daughter is going to act and behave. And it was really beautiful to see it unfold in that way. That is so beautiful. And I'm just like, I'm just connecting, connecting the dots around how we control our bodies. And then we had also talked about like this faux window and like controlling our minds and controlling and controlling and how we speak. Like, like you said, all these things, um, but that doesn't necessarily lead to the change that we're looking for or the desired outcome. And it actually does create a lot of constriction and pushback. And then I just think about what happens when people do like just cognitive work, mm-hmm. like cognitive behavioral therapy um, and how, you know, you can just like that mind control. It's like the more you try to control your mind, it feels like the more it won't be controlled. Wouldn't you say like, yeah. I mean, it's, we, we were talking earlier about like having a perspective of like the day could change, right? Mm-hmm. That's more of a place of trust. Correct. Than it is controlling your mind to not think it's going to be a bad day. Correct. Right. So those, so they can be kind of confused. Yeah. And sometimes we might even interchange them, not realizing it. Oh, I'm trusting, but really my faux window has me controlling everything. Right. <laughs> and that's that spiritual bypassing piece again. Like I'm trusting life. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm not really. Yeah. Like when I was sharing about me moving and not having a place to move. Like when I say I'm really trusting, everyone's like, well, what are you doing about it? I'm like, I'm occasionally looking on Facebook for rooms for rent. Um, You know, I got my plants a home. I have my canoe and bikes a home. And I was like, I'll be on a couch. And they're like, whose couch? I don't know whose couch yet. I'm, I'm literally, I'm not manic about trying to control everything. And, you know, my best friend Angela is like, you're way too calm. And I was like, well, don't you start to get anxious about this? Like, don't try to put that. We often try to put ours on someone else's Mm -hmm. because she is uncomfortable with how calm I am about this. Right. But my level of to hold, my ability to hold chaos is probably greater than someone else's. So we can't compare. Right. When someone says stress, it's their, um, gauge of stress, Mm -hmm. which is very different probably than mine yeah, and someone else's. And also like, I think it's important to have compassion when we are controlling things and have some insight around, like when we notice that we're really managing our environments or our relationships or ourselves or our body or our breath, maybe that's some information that there, you know, that there's some other stuff going on. Right. Right. And that there's, there's, there isn't a safety right now. And, you know, there's no one answer for that, Mm. but that's the, that's the information to be, to be kind of pruning from your experience is that when you're in that micromanagement space. Correct. And if we look at dating right now in a COVID society pandemic, we need a little bit more communication and guidance and planning. And that might show up as control where, you know, we might say to someone, you know, when, when can I see you next so I can plan and might be perceived as control or can you sit back and just let it unfold and Mm -hmm. trust? And so control comes in, in all aspects of our life. Yeah. And we live in a society where we're really controlled, the constraints of time. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, being timely, where in other countries, you know, 
I've lived in Africa. You were in African time. You were in South Africa. You ask someone to be there at five o'clock. Well, you're lucky if they show up by seven. But we have this expectation of it's timely. Yeah. Um, and control falls into that. So in some ways, we've been indoctrinated into falling more into controlled society. And right now, we, we have a little bit of that happening as well. Yeah, a lot. And I guess it's important, I'm, as you're talking, I'm thinking, you know, it's important to speak to the fact that not all control is bad, but it's when we're controlling our discomfort that's, that can be problematic. It's like when we're controlling things to avoid discomfort or to avoid certain challenging experiences. Or to control not changing. Yes. Yes. And because change is uncomfortable. Correct. Yeah. And so that's when it's like, you know, it can be problematic. Whereas like, you know, there's certain things that maybe we do need to control. I mean, I I question it, but yeah. yeah. Or another example would be is say someone offers a very generous offer that they would like to take me shopping and buy me things. What happens in my body is immediate constriction and discomfort. Through my own upbringing, I was raised to be very independent, um, frivolous, really, very frugal in other ways. And, and so when someone offers this generous gesture, I'm like, oh my gosh, I want to get small. I'm like, and all I can do is say, sure, yeah, this is going to be a learning edge. And I have to sit with the discomfort through that. Mm -hmm. But the only way I'm going to get through it and change my physiology is by practicing it and practicing it and practicing it. So I have to practice receiving flowers from my man. I have to practice gifts from him, time with him. And all of that creates some constriction. And so I have to lean into it and be present with it and communicating it to him so he understands that this is challenging. This isn't easy. I might have a response to it, but I'm willing to go there and work through it. But I need a supportive partner who can be patient with me there. Right. And and, um, assessing, being able to... Assess like what is the discomfort that we need to move through because it's healthier and versus what is the discomfort that isn't safe, right? And that that is part of the self-inquiry that is the, the self-healing, the personal work. It's like, is this is this sensation that I'm having in my body of anxiety? Is that old shit that I shouldn't listen to and I just need to like go to work today, even though I don't want to, mm-hmm. or is this anxiety that's coming up actually because I'm having some boundaries that are crossed and things aren't okay for me. And I often let those things happen without listening to my inside voice. And the self-inquiry is really an interesting one because it's sensation, but it also could be our old, I always say we have these thought patterns, our old stories that we keep telling ourselves. So when someone says they want to take me shopping, I must have somewhere possibly not even in this lifetime, where I thought I wasn't worthy of gifts. I wasn't worthy of generosity or someone taking me out and buying me a beautiful dinner. And so I'm playing with that all the time of like, Mm -hmm. where's that from? And why does it show up? And over the years of, you know, studying somatic experiencing and couch surfing and being in and around very generous humans, it's become easier. 
and there's way less constriction, but I still have lots to learn. And to keep watching my self-thoughts or maybe my stories, they could be unconscious. Yeah. I don't know. But if there is any constriction, I know there's something to work there. Yeah. And decide and trying to figure out like which way does it need to work. And I mean, one of the things I've been working with a lot in my practice with people is this anxiety and like the physical sensation of anxiety and going in and, and kind of teasing that apart. And like, you, this sounds crazy, but like, what's the wisdom in that anxiety, mm-hmm. right? So what is that, that sensation that's coming up? Like, is that um, because there's something's not right for you? Like that you need something different that maybe you're not listening to? Or is it that like, that's uncomfortable? Or is this anxiety just like being a block right now for something that you that you desire. And it's not a simple answer sometimes, mm-hmm. right? So sometimes sensations come up and we're like, we need to move, like move through the experience. And sometimes sensations come up and we're like, okay, that's an indication that this isn't actually okay for me. And my body's telling me that. Yeah. yeah. And often sensations can be mislabeled. Mm-hmm. So as a child, I fell and hurt my knee and I'm bleeding and I'm feeling something, and my parent comes along and says, that didn't hurt. Yeah. So now I'm confused because we're taught that adults are always right. So when they're telling me it didn't hurt, so I'm like, so what I'm feeling right now is not hurt. It's not pain. So I'm getting mixed messaging. So it's really hard to figure out what's going on. Mm -hmm. And so with that, it's confusing in my own self. And what we know about anxiety and excitement they're the same. They're the same. <laughs> so how confusing is that? And how limiting is that? Because really, we all want to experience joy and life force and energy. But if it feels the same as anxiety, this anxiety is making us terrified of the thing that we want the most. Yes. And so every time we might move in to feel some joy or some excitement, we shut it down because we think we're having an anxiety yes. attack. Yes. And so it becomes a vicious circle, this looping that we really have to take a moment and become really aware. And that's probably the biggest piece of the work is really having a practice of awareness with yourself. Yeah, that is, that is it. You know, that's that self-inquiry and Mm -hmm. understanding your nervous system and understanding your body sensations. And, you know, um, that experiential piece is so, so, so important. Yeah. And, you know, it's finding practitioners or people or, or things that can actually support you in that embodied experience and you mm-hmm. in that inquiry versus telling you what you're experiencing or telling you how it's supposed to be. And that's something that I carry so strongly in my, pra- my personal counseling practice with people. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, when coming back to this idea of attachment and boundaries as clinicians, I think that's really the issue. Mm-hmm is when we don't empower our, our clients yeah. and we are like kind of manipulating the relationship and taking, um, like being in charge and telling them, right? And that's kind of the safety piece, just yeah. not to circle back too far, but. Even a piece there, like I'm, I'm moving. And so my clients have known, because I'm seeing them in the house I'm in right now, that I'm moving. So they're also curious and maybe anxious of like, if I don't find a space, they won't be able to see me. And so now I've let everyone know, okay, I have, I've had, I have a house. Now I'm looking for an office. So in the meantime, if I need to see you in my house, 
my housemates are okay with that with protocol in okay. place. But a bunch of them have reached out and said, we want to help you move. <laughs> and they're really asking, can I help? Mm-hmm. And from the whole perspective outside society and kind of the borders and boundaries of a clinician, we would say, no, I'm sorry, that's crossing boundaries. Yeah. I help them all the time. They want to give back something. Mm-hmm. They want to be of service to me. And so I've given them all little tasks. <laughs> Someone is going to come over and move all my plants. Someone's going to come and help. They really want to take a furniture apart. And I'm like, yes, come. And now we get to be in relationship outside of a clinical office yeah. or of my office or my practice. Right. And that's, and that in itself, like I think about as clinicians, how there's a big problem or struggle with burnout and compassion fatigue. And, you know, I think a lot of times these boundaries um, can be problematic mm-hmm. in those areas because then we're, you know, these are relationships and yeah, I mean, this is a, a really muddy area to get into, but it's mm-hmm. like, you know, when you're practicing for years and you have these really firm boundaries with people. And as a clinician, you don't get to share or you don't get to like fully show yourself. And you also are told not to receive. Isn't that counterintuitive to our souls and our ourselves? Well, even for attachment style, it's one dimensional. Yes. And it, and it further um, builds this power dynamic that we're so you know, scared of creating. And so we're setting these boundaries to not have these, this pedestal mm-hmm. situation, but then you know, it's kind of perpetuated yeah. by that experience. A hundred percent. And my background, as you know, is adventure tourism. Mm-hmm. So taking people out into the wilderness. So this past summer, I was going on a canoe trip and one client got let go at their job a week before. And I said, are you supposed to come canoeing with me? And they're like, really? So we spent one week in a wilderness environment. And so therapy happened every day. And where we went in one week would have been five years in an office. Wow. And I got to see life skills, their self-care, what happens when they're cold, how can I support them, helping them learn how to build a fire for the first time, set up a tent for the first time. Mm -hmm. I had to create a container that was so huge because of how unsafe they felt in the wilderness. And that felt okay for you? Entirely. I want more of it. I want you to do more of it and I want to come. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. yeah, I think, yeah, thanks, Verdell. I think that's, it's a really important conversation um, around how we support people and also just like the humanness, right? And, and as the world grows and we have more practitioners and we have more therapies mm-hmm. and things that are coming up, it's like, yeah. We need to evolve and we need to, yeah. We can't be so rigid. We have to have flexibility. There has to be really good boundaries. And personal work. And personal work. Definitely (laughs) personal work. Integrity, Mm -hmm. right? Like you have to, the thing, the scary thing about it is like, if you're going to care for people and make, allow that relationship to be an attachment, it's like, then guess what? You're responsible in that relationship. Entirely out canoeing. You know, every day I said to the individual, you you must know how to steer a boat because if something happens to me, I need to lean on you to help out. Yeah. So what skills do I need to build for you to feel safe here? Yeah. You know, starting a stove, 
being able to get water. We spend a lot of time on navigation. Where are we getting picked up by the float plane? Like at all times, you need to know how to get us back. I know how to get back. But could you take care of us? You know, and we had a sat phone. So how to use the sat phone? And so all of a sudden, I'm allowing her to feel that I need to trust her. Mm-hmm. Which is empowering. Which is so empowering. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, it's such important stuff. Um, thanks, Fidel. Yeah. It's so <laughs> lovely to sit. I'm like, we could talk for hours. I know. And, I, you know, I'm like, there's, it just feels like maybe a natural place. Mm-hmm. Um, so how can people get a hold of you? Certainly. I'm... I've practiced here in Kamloops, which I come to once a, a month. And as if the demand increases, then I would actually open up more of a schedule here. And then I have a practice in Vancouver. It's looking like that will shift as I move, but I will be based somewhere in Vancouver. I possibly will be in West Vancouver. And the best way to reach me is through my website, which is Verdell Jessup dot com yeah and we'll link it in the show notes perfect yeah Yeah. thank you so much for being here and talking with me and you know i'm endlessly grateful Mm -hmm. for meeting you and being on this journey with you as a client but also now as a friend and colleague Colleague. yeah Yeah. it's been lovely yeah it's been very great so thanks for being here and having a chat it's such a treat isn't it i'm like i don't want to leave but i have to (laughs) are you heading back to vancouver i am yeah yeah Yeah, I have some clients today. So thanks Mm -hmm. for listening, everyone. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. (laughs) Well, there you have it. That was episode two with Verdell Jessup. And as she said, you can find her on her website, verdelljessup.com. She's also on Instagram at Verdell Jessup. So I will link that in the show notes. Uh, Thank you for making it all the way to the end. And just remember, we also have a video version of this podcast up on YouTube at Deandra Day Therapy. And I would love to know how you feel about this conversation today or any insights that you might have had while listening. Um, Again, if you'd like to contact me, you can find me at deandra.day on Instagram or my website, deandradaytherapy.com. 